Hey everyone, welcome to the Mass Construction Show with today's guest, James Hillegas, Prefabrication Manager at OCP Contractors. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is the podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. In this episode, James and I dig in on prefabrication, what a prefabrication manager does, and what made a drywall carpentry company invest so heavily in the process. There's also a bit of an overlap with some of our recent conversations around how rapidly our business is changing and what that means for both blue-collar and white-collar construction professionals. I'm excited to have James here to up our prefab discussion game. Enjoy the show. James, welcome to the Mass Construction Show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yep. Uh, We're remote from... uh, are you in the office or you're out on site? I'm in the office. I put a note on the door and let's see if everybody listens to it. Okay. Uh, where in Ohio? Cleveland. Uh, Bedford's about uh, 20 minutes south of the actual city. Okay. Uh, Great Lakes Brewing Company? Great Lakes Brewing is in downtown Cleveland. My parents love it. I don't. I can't get into it. It's like drinking lead. Okay. <laughs> friend of mine uh, works there. so. Uh... Oh, yep, yep. My parents love it. Uh, Christmas sale is probably the... One of the biggest hits. That stuff doesn't stay in a store very long. Uh, awesome. Glad to hear it. Um, so, James, I mean, I brought you on because I wanted to talk about prefabrication. And, um, you know, people don't know it yet, but that's going to be a little bit of a theme that I want to dig into. I have a few folks coming on. Um, but before we go into that, I mean, you do quite a bit. You're a relatively young guy, but... Um, uh, you know, I like that you're trying a lot of things between podcasts and videos. Uh, I seem to think your best channel to stay in touch with you is LinkedIn. Is that yeah. fair? I don't think I've seen you on Instagram. I've looked for you. Are you there? I have made one and deleted one, but I am mainly on LinkedIn for professional reasons. I tr- tried to keep an Instagram up to show like behind the scenes in the shop and like day-to-day operations, but um, mainly LinkedIn is the main platform. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've historically been LinkedIn for quite some time now, but um, been enjoying Instagram lately. I didn't yeah. start out as a, you know, a heavy user of it personally, so it wasn't kind of my natural thing. But I started using it for business and ended up really liking it. And it, it's funny is where many people are finding a shift to LinkedIn being beneficial. I've been in LinkedIn for the past three years, and I almost see my stuff shifting to Instagram, which is. Uh, which is strange. It seems to be against the tide, but uh, I, I like it. Yeah, no, definitely. It's not what you think of, but uh, there's definitely people that make uh, good content on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So James is worth checking out on LinkedIn. You're also um, a, would you call it a host of Contact Crew? Yeah, I'm a co-host. I'm not the, the main guy behind the scenes, but I'm just a co-host with, uh, along with either James, Jeff, Rob, Josh, um, to hear, uh, sometimes they have a special guest depending on, uh, who the actual guest is, the guest of honor. Yeah. So if folks are, uh, like contact crew, you're probably familiar with James. If you don't listen to contract crew, uh, check it out, especially if you like construction tech. Um, James has some great stuff on there. Um, I actually saw the video you did today with Struction site and you killed me because you just, uh, it was like off a cliff at the end. I was like, all right, now he's going to get to the video. And, nope, uh, that's part two. Yeah. So uh, it, it's some of the content. I mean, it, what do you call it? Uh, tech You Should Try or something like that? Yeah, Tech You Should Try. I kind of picked it up from Rob McKinney. He kind of did it for a couple years. And um, 
so once he went back to doing working for other people, I kind of took it and ran with it uh, since he kind of left the spot vacated. He still helps me behind the scenes a little bit, mm -hmm. um, pros and cons and what to do, what not to do, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's some of the contents that, that's out there. You're also showing what you're doing for prefab. Um, so it's good stuff on LinkedIn, but uh, we're here to talk about prefab. So for folks that might not be aware, like it's not a common title, even though it's probably becoming more title, uh, more common as the days go by. But, um, you know, your title is prefab manager. And, you know, what does a prefab manager do for folks that are unaware? Uh, best way to explain it is you get people to trust you. And by people, I mean the field. Um, the biggest thing is if the field trusts you, you're going to have, it just, it makes everything else a lot easier and it opens up the possibilities and people are more willing to try things and, uh, try new things that they haven't done before and even come to you with ideas, uh, simply for the fact that you're not going to get mad or frustrated or whatever one stuff doesn't work. Um, Personally, I'm not a very emotionally strong person. I don't get anger very often, and I don't show emotion very often. I'm pretty straight poker face, so to speak. Mm. And getting the field to trust, being young also, um, just getting the field to trust you. But basically, um, from a job description standpoint, you know, we go through and look at jobs, uh, whether they're design, build, or hard bid, and basically determine what we can and can't prefab, or what we want to try or not. Uh, what we've done and proven or what we want to try on the job. Um, and we create all the drawings, order all the material, uh, coordinate any field dimensions that are needed, whether it's myself doing it, the foreman in the field doing it, one of the carpenters in the field doing it, and then um, going through procuring the material, building it and coordinating the logistics of getting it on site, you know, how it's got to get on site, when, where, and all that other kind of stuff. Okay. So you're like doing a mix of, acting as a middle person between the field and the shop, um, probably some design to some degree, you know, because things might go together differently than um, in a traditional stick-built fashion, I'll say. Sure, there's, metal, whatever. there's certain things that we come up with ourselves, like means and methods, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. And I'm not the guru behind all of it. There's a guy in the shop that's been a carpenter for 30 years. So usually I'll come up with the first pass at something and then we'll kind of talk about like this is what it's got to be used for uh, this is what the foreman said he's got space to work with or whatever the case might be and then he'll say well we can do something like this uh, if it happens to be a situation where it's like load bearing or some engineer piece then we have to um, get it uh, like from down get it approved yeah sorry and In get it approved by the engineer and, and, and proceed for it, proceed with it from there okay have you guys considered bringing somebody whether it's an in-house engineer or a third party that you guys use or are you strictly going with the engineer of record on the project or? uh for most of the cold form we're always having to get our own engineer so we have a third party engineer that the company uses that does all of our cold form design so if it's anything related to that uh, we contact him in most cases the it's a you know it depends I would say a good majority of the jobs, the cold form is not load bearing. It's just bypass and weatherproofing, so to speak. It's not supporting any weight of the structure. Um, it's more for wind at that at that point. But um, that's who we go with. We don't have any in-house engineers. It's something the company has chosen to not have, and yeah. that's their decision. Oh yeah, that's pretty 
common, reasonable. Um, now, how did it come about? Like, um, so you work for OCP contractors that you guys do um, drywall, metal framing, insulation, fireproofing, like what most kind of large, what some people might just call drywall subs would do or carpentry subs. Um, you, you know, you don't have that background, right? You have more of a tech background and an engineering background. Did they seek you out? Did they, did, you know, how did, how did that role come about? Was there like a senior level push to say that we need to start prefabbing more as a result of what GCs are asking for? Like, can you, can you just talk about how that maybe all played out? Or? Sure. So the role was created um, at OCP, I believe, four or five years ago. And I guess, so to speak, I'm the third generation um, prefab manager. So there's been two other people bef- prior to me. Um, and I initially worked with OCP on the GC side. So I was a PE slash superintendent for the exterior of a hospital tower in Akron. And without getting into the, the weeds of it, there was some coordination drawings that were not produced that uh, cost a lot of extra money to rework. And nobody really knew what the, the bottom of the situation was. And the architect couldn't, no one could really figure it out because the coordination drawings haven't been made. And at the time I was one of the few people on the project team that could run Revit. And so I ran Revit, or I used Revit and some AutoCAD and shop drawings between these four different sources. And I produced the coordinated set of drawings, which at the point was just out of necessity to keep progressing with the project. Yeah. That's kind of how the relationship with OCP formed um, beyond just being uh, the PE for the GC at the time. Mm. Um, and they kind of you know, discussed it. And the GC I worked for was Shook. And I've known them since a freshman in, in college. Um, so I... We, did everything to make sure that that separation was was smooth as possible. Um, but that's kind of how the, the role came about. And it was just kind of a, you know, the management's pretty forward thinking, you know, just trying to stay pace with with construction, with everybody else. In Ohio specifically, they're probably one of the larger drywall contractors um, in the, Cleveland for sure. I don't know about the state, mm-hmm. um, but they're definitely up there in the top 10 uh, drywall contractors and they're in peer groups and, I don't know what conversations went on in their peer groups uh, at the time when they decided to to form the role, but I am like the third generation of it, so I'm not the originator, I'm not the OG. Yeah, but it, that's a pretty short window of a third generation, right? Three people over five years, so you know, I, I think they were probably searching for the right person, or the right person wasn't, you know, didn't like it and they left her for whatever reason. But you know, you mentioned that they were pretty forward. They're a pretty forward-thinking group. Um, do you know some of the like senior-level thought process that was going into willing to dedicate a full role to prefabrication? You know, were they? I guess let me rephrase this a little better. Were they thinking about it from the perspective of, okay, our competition is doing this, and we need to do it to keep up, or? general contractors are looking for this, so we need to meet that demand? Or is it a third thing which would be, hey, we're not being asked for it from a GC yet that much and our competitors aren't doing it, but this can be a differentiator and, or maybe even a profit source? Like what what was the logic, uh, what was the thinking as much as you can know about it? I know you weren't sitting in on it, but. 
So I believe the thinking might have been a little bit of number two with GCs asking for it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a pretty sophisticated owner in Cleveland, the Cleveland Clinic, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty advanced as far as ownership. Probably one of the more advanced owners, I would say, within the market in which we work. I've, OCP in of itself has offices in Toledo, Ohio, which is on the west side, right by Indiana and Michigan. Uh, office in Columbus, which is basically central Ohio, and then Cleveland, uh, which is where I'm based out of. So we do have a few sophisticated owners like the Cleveland Clinic, um, who I'm sure have probably requested things that kind of prompted this along with GCs. Um, those are jobs with the clinic are usually some of the larger GCs like the Turner, the Turners or the White and Turners or Walsh's of the world. Um, and then also we, as far as I have seen, our competition is not doing this and it does not have this role. Um, so it's kind of a scene as one GC slash owner request, which that's more of an assumption on my behalf. Mm-hmm. might not be hundred percent correct because I wasn't around. Um, but then also it was seen as a way to put us above the competition, so to speak, as by creating this role. Yeah. I mean, to some degree shook when you were there would have wanted this out of uh, OCP, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, now, is does that mean everything, uh, as U.S. prefab manager, does that, do you mean you run all, do all the offices run through the Cleveland shop or? So right now, the way the hierarchy, or the way I guess where the company set up is I'm the only prefab manager within the company and I just focus on Cleveland. Uh, as far as offices go, the Cleveland office is the largest in terms of people, in terms of uh, revenue, dollar value, um, project sizes, all that kind of, all those metrics. Uh, yeah. The Cleveland office is the largest of the group. Um, and right now that role is just exist here. I have talked with other offices and kind of micro help, very, very, very minimal, but I'm mainly just focused on the Cleveland office. Okay. And you guys have what, like a shot, a production facility, prefab facility in Cleveland or? Correct. Behind one, two, two walls behind me is the shop. Okay. And is that just a repurposing of an existing warehouse that you guys did or? So the company originally was in Willoughby, Ohio, which is on the east side headed towards Pennsylvania. And then they worked out a deal where they moved to Bedford, which is more of a central location between east and west and I guess the north side of of Cleveland. and this is kind of a repurposed warehouse, so to speak. I mean, it can be used for probably a lot of things. The building was obviously here, um, but it's it's not really geared. There's definitely things that could be improved or that are desired to make it more ideal for prefabrication. So it's to answer your question, I guess it's a refurbished uh, okay. shop. Okay. So you guys were operating in a different manner, and you're like, okay, we need a prefabrication facility, and we'll kind of shoehorn it in here. They were looking, I believe, for a larger office um, for like personnel, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And then obviously, um, one, we have equipment that we maintain, trucks and things of that nature. So we needed shops for the mechanic to have and then a shop for the prefabrication operations. And then also there's the ownership owns two companies. So we have a a sister company that does distribution. So we needed a at grade dock for trucks to back up into and get loaded and not of doesn't pertain to what we do in the prefab world but that's kind of played into how they chose this building in particular 
So if you had to narrow it down, is it more, um, do you think the prefab is more about a, uh, is it more of a cost decision or is it more of um, being competitive and staying ahead of the curve kind of approach? Uh, I think it's a combination of the three and kind of it's Hmm. the, the weighted average, so to speak of cost, time, safety, uh, all safety is obviously always a factor in every job and owners are getting more and more from what I've seen. And granted, I'm not on the pre-con side uh, specifically, but are seem to request higher and higher standards for safety metrics. Mm. Um, and, and I've even seen times where certain companies haven't won jobs because of you know, not meeting certain requirements that the owner has mm-hmm. with safety being uh, assumed the other ones are cost and time and then that just varies on on the project and also the weather uh, obviously you know you're in boston i believe so you guys get snow just like we get snow and we have certain materials that have weather restrictions and temperature restrictions and moisture restrictions and if we can you know do those things without delaying the schedule or even helping the schedule in the winter that's something that people are certainly open to um, prefab doesn't necessarily always save money on construction because of the transportation, um, it just depends on you know the, the equation. How how much can you build in the shop? How much can you ship at one time versus how much can you do in the field and all those other kind of factors. Um, so it really just depends. Uh, for traditionally, you do see some kind of savings when you do prefabrication. Um, the biggest thing really I attribute to is just general planning. There's so much forethought that goes in prior that it really helps eliminate a lot of the bottlenecks, so to speak, that a lot of those questions get asked up front. Whereas if you just send out standard size material, like, you know, lengths of standard lengths of pipe or um, standard lengths of studs and let the guys in the field figure it out, you're, you're catching a lot of those problems a lot later in the process. It's kind of like going on a diet and it's a lot easier to lose five pounds shortly after I don't know, the holidays, or whatever, than it is after three years and we have to lose 100 pounds. Yeah. It's the same thing with prefab. Prefab is just starting the process a little bit earlier in construction than what we've traditionally done. So I attribute, personally, my viewpoint is a lot of it just goes into the general upfront planning of work that's very detailed-oriented uh, to do prefabrication. Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. Um, first off, maybe there's waste and the safety mixed kind of in there, right? Which is you know a lot of what you were alluding to there, just like waste reduction, which is... Um, it's kind of a nice byproduct, right? It's not the sole driver of doing it. There is some cost probably in there, but then there's also just a sustainability kind of environmental benefit. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about the safety piece? Like for, um, you know, where some people, it might not be obvious, uh, why it's safer. I think there's some sleeper reasons kind of in there why it's safer. Sure. So safety on a job site, especially, so a couple reasons. One, when you start off new people on a job site, a lot of things, they just don't know what to look for, what to expect. So there's a lot of variables in terms of like your personnel and and understanding the site, especially when they're apprentices or new hires uh, within the trades. Mm -hmm. Other things on site are there's a lot of moving targets on site, whether it's cranes making lifts, uh, lulls driving around, um, site work, if it's being done at the time, uh, along with a lot of the boom lifts or overhead work that are probably being done uh, or could be out of a swing stage. 
So there's a lot of activity on site and a lot of those pieces of equipment have blind spots. So there's opportunities for people to get hurt there. And then also with work on site, there's a, there can be, or there tends to be a lot of travel time to the bathroom, getting material from another floor, uh, whatever the case might be. So you're uh, increasing your likelihood of an injury. And in addition, typically for work on site, you, you need a lot more guys because work's more spread out uh, than in a shop setting. So you're, it's basically just math, you know, more guys, more room, more moving stuff, um, more activity or more, act, yeah, more activity equals higher likelihood or higher probability of a safety incident. When you bring it in a shop, one, you reduce, you reduce the, or eliminate weather. You know, here. talked about weather before, but yeah, that's a good one, right? Yeah. Well, you get ice and snow and things get very slippery uh, outside. So you get a lot of those, those factors which you can eliminate. Uh, in the shop, there's very few moving objects. There's not none, but there's less than on site. Uh, and three, you're really in control of a lot more of those variables. It does. It just doesn't require as many guys, and they're working in more of a controlled and clean environment. Um, you know, try taking a car manufacturing facility and having them build it outside on different floors without all the machines that they have. It'd be, I'm sure, the results would be a lot different than what we have come to expect from any of the major automotive manufacturers. Absolutely, and your working conditions slash facility changes daily, right? Okay, well, we went this way before. Now there's a hole there today, right? Like so, it's very, it's a dynamic thing versus a more obviously the shop will be a little bit dynamic, but much more of a controlled environment comparatively, right? Um, and then, like you were talking about, weather leads to um, you know mold issues. Um, general temperature issues, the ice, the freezing, the water. Um, and then even just think like um, ergonomics, right? Working at bench height versus working off of a ladder or bending down or trying to reach. And um, seems like there's a lot of hidden benefits. And then you talked about workforce training. Not only is it a dynamic space, but I would have to imagine the shop employees are a much steadier crew. Is that, is that a fair statement? So in the case of OCP, we typically have apprentices in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, we do keep a steady crew. So once they, they find a core group of guys that have a good rhythm going, we tend to keep them in the shop um, for at least a period of six months. But they do tend to put new hires in the shop simply for the more of the one-on-one attention that they can get in a shop setting, whereas on larger job sites, uh, I guess it's easier to not really get that one-on-one attention because things are more spread out, so to speak. Hmm. So you, th- th- there's another benefit, right? So you're using prefabricate. The prefab shop is just a, almost like a training ground, right? It's a training ground, and they also use it as a way to, for lack of better words, uh, brainwash people into thinking this is the way we do things. Mm-hmm. So when those apprentices become foremen, they kind of accept prefab as the standard, whereas with uh, foremen that have been in the field for 15, 20, 30 years, prefab is a newer concept and at times can be harder to sell than to someone who just, that's all they've ever known. They don't know any different. Yeah. Do you think some people see it as the enemy? I think some people see it as the enemy. The challenge that you have is we don't know what the future looks or is, so to speak. So 
the, when before the iPhone existed, there was no mobile app developer job, so to speak. And it opened up, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs and created companies all around the world, but nobody could have really seen that, so to speak. And so with, with prefab, you know, you're bringing things inside, you know, then robotics start getting involved and it's hard to see around the corner of what, what skills do I have to acquire or learn to maintain a job, uh, so to speak, because prefab, you can get away with less, less labor. It's just a fact. Yeah. And you're not necessarily trying to get rid of your A players. Um, you're just trying to get rid of the D players and life's a competitive game. So you're, you're going to find something else for the A player to do if you find a way to eliminate a guy, so to speak. It's just the nature of the world. Yeah. And I guess I wasn't so much even asking, you know, if it's good or bad, right? It was more does, but I'm just saying I, I would think that there's definitely got to be a subset of the population that isn't thinking about new jobs developed. They're just looking very linear at, okay, that's going to take away my job, right? Which that's some resistance where you talk about your first thing you talked about was, you know, kind of bridging the gap and gaining trust. That's going to make that harder, right? Not that it can't happen, but, um, and you're 100% right about, um, you know, what's around the corner. And there's a probably a, there's a potentially a good case to be made for the fact that if modular or prefabrication makes a project that would have never happened because of cost, now there's a building that, so yes, there might be less people working on a particular task, so that's less jobs. But now if an entire construction project that wouldn't pencil before now can pencil because you made it cost effective. Well, there's a whole group of jobs that would have never came on the marketplace, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of variables. It's let's you know we don't have enough information to tell how that all plays out. But yeah, you're right. Um, so if we can dig in a lot on what your I don't want to say your your but I'd maybe just say day to day looks like. So. Um, and let's start maybe with a project comes in that you guys are looking to bid. How early in the process are you getting involved and what does that involvement look like? So if it's a hard bid job, they just bid it and they bid it to, depending on what their objectives are at the time, whether it's just to get work in or whether they like it, but they don't really want it or whether they really want it. I'm not in those conversations, but if it's a hard bid job, I don't look at it until we are given a notice to proceed. And then I will sit down with the foreman and we'll go through the job and we'll look at it based on what our scope is, whether it's exterior, interior, ceilings, um, anything of the sorts. If it's a design build job um, or something of the sorts where more, it's more of a collaboration style uh, contract. Maybe negotiated work. Yeah, we'll, yeah. I will be asked if we can do certain things and then they might have me come to meetings just to make sure we're committing to things that we're able to do. There have been cases where we have offered prefab on hard bid jobs and have secured them through that method. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, the traditional method right now still is hard bid a job. We get a notice to proceed. 
the foreman and myself will sit down and comb through the drawings based on our scope and come up with a list of what we can do, what we have done, and what we want to try for each job. Hmm. That's really surprising. Is there enough, like, because, so they're bidding everything, assuming everything, I'm going to use the term stick built in the field, right? With all the full labor associated with that, and then just working backwards from there. Correct. Wow. Okay. Is now, and I'd be surprised. Do they look at it and say, like, okay, is there some like givens out there that they can say, okay, well, we know we can prefab this. We don't even need to bring James in to talk about this, so we'll price it that way. Or are they pricing as if we have to have to stick build everything? Uh, making an assumption here because obviously I don't see every bid that goes in, mm-hmm. but I believe most bids are priced as if we had to build it in the field. Okay. Do you think you'll get to a place where that'll change? As contracts change, yes. But we're still in the Midwest, and while we're more sophisticated, so to speak, than most of the Midwest, relatively speaking, we're still not the coast where contract methods, especially like in the Southwest, are a little bit more advanced, and a majority of them, from from what I've been told, are more design-build design oriented. Mm. And then, but if it's negotiated, you're you're getting in earlier in the process and trying to see what uh, what can be done. Correct, or or we can make suggestions to the architects because a lot of times with the hard bid job, there we can't make any changes to make or make or create more prefab opportunities. We're kind of stuck with the plate we've been given, we can make minor tweaks, but we can't make anything major like shift a wall or change this style, that kind of stuff to enable more prefab opportunities. But you would think from just even from a scheduling standpoint and a general contractor wants to bring down accidents on their site too. And, you know, you would think that they would embrace the idea of you saying, okay, hey, this is how it's designed, but if you build it this way, we can prefabricate this for the next seven floors and, you know, you'll save X amount of time and there'll be less labor on site or that labor. We can then put it into the lobby where it's more time intensive and more detail oriented and we can get that done a little faster. Like, I mean, there's so much upside for the GC. I would think that they would even push on the architect or go to the owner and say, hey, listen, this is the way it's designed, but, um, you know, why don't we try and work and make this process better with a minor change um with the hard bid jobs it's a little bit too late in the game to make those kind of changes if the owner's willing to pay for the consultant's time to go back and make whatever redesign has to be done Mm -hmm. um because when obviously when we get a a notice to bid or an invite to bid um they're pretty much uh committed Okay. For the most part, at that time, with what they have designed, so we're kind of stuck. Mm. We can get pretty creative and come up with ways to do to do prefab opportunities. The biggest issue you get with a hard bid style jobs is the is the time up front to do a lot of planning for complicated um, things. Mainly speaking, wall panels. Typically, for us at least, you get a bid, get notice to proceed and you got to do engineering drawings and start getting stuff on site right away it makes turnaround time to do panels or stuff like that rather challenging to meet the schedule that they already have set up uh, and turnaround time if that makes sense you know it does yeah 
So good. No, I was just going to say. So you're just despite the time improvement and less man hours, just the start time is just can be too restrictive to allow that time for planning. Is that that's really the at the heart of it? That that's at the heart of it, and despite what people might think, let's say you're gonna you have four weeks to start and you got your notice to proceed. And it might take you, you know, four weeks to get your engineering drawings approved. So four weeks goes by, engineering drawings approved, materials ordered. You can either start building panels in the shop and the GC might not see something on his site for a two or a week or so after you're supposed to be on site. And they might get worried or panicked that you're not going to meet the schedule, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But the perception of having something up in the air on the day you're supposed to start, they just like that more. Wow. Whether yeah. the logically that makes that decision makes sense, emotionally, that's kind of the at least what we've seen uh, for the most part. Um, it's kind of like the whole speeding thing, like driving five miles over five mile an hour over the speed limit while I do it daily doesn't really get you there that much faster because chances are you're not driving for an hour, but it's the perception that you have as a person that kind of makes those drives, those decisions, whether they're logically sound or not. Oh yeah. No, I mean, if you walk out on site and you hear a bunch of screw guns going, you know, you're like, all right, that sound means progress, right? That's what I have for like the transition sound is the screw gun. I used to work with the super and he was just like, Oh, it's the sweetest sound in the world. You hear those, you know, and he was here, the voop, 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 right. You know, um, and they could be hanging the sheetrock in all the wrong places, but it feels like you're going somewhere, right? You know? Um, so yeah, there's, there's, it, it's crazy. I didn't think we would go there, but there's a psychological piece to this, right? Where you're just breaking away, um, going back to that word trust, right? Somebody has to trust that, yeah, you want to see us putting top track and bottom track in today because that's what the schedule says and nobody's out on site. But if you just wait two weeks, we're going to show up and it's all going to be done in six hours, right? But you, you got to get that trust factor there and get them willing to buy in from here on your right? Correct. Yeah, just get them to buy in. One, mainly just explain to them how the process works. And photos speak a thousand words. Um, and when I present at the Contact Roadshow in Dallas this past winter in December, I showed two photos and I'll give them to you if you want to put them in your show notes or whatever. Yeah, I showed a photo of a job site and I said, this is October 1st, 3.22 p.m. Or excuse me, this is October 1st, 9.08 a.m. And then I showed another photo and it was October 2nd, 3.22 p.m. And half the whole building was enclosed with panels mm -hmm. in the matter of a day's worth of work. Um, so people, a lot of people, you could hear the the gasp in the audience when people start to see it becomes a little bit more tangible. You know, we've done several jobs for GCs where this is their first major prefab operation. And even for the engineers and architects, um, by major prefab for us specifically, that usually just means panels. And sometimes you have to go through a few, hu few hoops and explanations to get the engineer to be okay with it, to get the architect to be okay with it, the owner, maybe the GC or some combination of those four um, individuals. You know, it would be a cool uh, thing to add to that for effect. You could be like October, whatever, 9.08 AM, whatever the timestamp on it was. 
and then you could say 17 weeks behind schedule, right? <laughs> and then flip to the next one and be like, yeah, at 12.07, three days ahead of schedule, right? Like, you know, uh, it would be interesting what that what that time period was of where you were supposed to be at, you know, from that point if they're on the traditional schedule. Um, so you do get that job and you move it, you get with um, the project manager or the superintendent or foreman and start saying, okay, what pieces can we break off and prefabricate? How does that kind of shake out? So I'll, for the sake of conversation, to make it simple, I'll assume that we have the exterior, which is going to be framing, sheathing, AVB. Uh, we'll assume the building's brick, so that's not going to be us. And then for the interior, we'll just assume framing, hanging, taping, finishing, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. so, and we'll do ceilings. So the first one is for exterior, decisions got to be made up front. They got to be made pretty quick. Um, so in that case, the foreman for that job probably hasn't been selected yet, but the superintendent probably is. Mm -hmm. We have two superintendents and I'll basically sit down with first the foreman in the shop. Him and I will go over Basically, this is our plan for the exterior. We're going to build these panels. We're going to rip the parapets on like the backside sheathing. We can make all of these parapet caps. And in these couple areas, we're just going to do pre-cut studs. And the rest of it, we're going to panelize. We'll basically make a presentation, a pitch, if you will, to the superintendent and the PM of why we, what we're doing and what we're proposing, and then get everybody to buy in. And then if we have to coordinate anything with the GC, we'll do that. And then we're off and running with producing those those drawings to facilitate that work. Again, it goes back to trust. Pretty much at the point now where the PMs are pretty open to it once you've proven yourself once or twice on a couple jobs. So the, the whole pitching part gets pretty simple. Mm. It's more or less a formality, if that makes sense. Yeah. Could I ask you something on that? Because mm -hmm. I kind of thought you'd be at the point where, like, okay, we get any type of job. If it's a podium, I don't know what you guys call it there, what I call a podium, or we call a podium around here. It's concrete first floor and then five floors of whatever above, right? Um, do you know that, okay, on this type of job, it's a given that we're going to do such and such walls, prefabrication, certain interior walls. We're going to look at the layout and see if that makes sense. Anything over... X number of feet we want to do you have some kind of set automatics that are kind of low-hanging fruit that you go after and then there's other stuff where it's more of a decision where you're like oh yeah we could do that but that's going to be a lot of work and better off doing that in the field what does that look like so for exterior walls anything that bypasses a slab is pretty much a guarantee for panels okay. um just then at that point just comes down to overall panel size and how we want to slice it up just for shipping purposes. Can I ask right? you why, sorry to interrupt, but can I ask you why it flying by the slab makes it an automatic versus if it was just sitting on the slab? Sure. In the cases where the, and people call it balloon frame, and I'm sure there's a thousand other words for it. In the cases where the wall flies by the slab, we have a little bit more room to play uh, regarding height and making the walls plumb and straight and everything with the wall flying by the slab and not relying on the concrete um, to be perfect underneath. In the cases where a wall goes from slab to slab or slab to steel or some case where it's constrained both top and bottom, there's a little bit more 
tolerance buildup that can make prefabrication a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. There obviously certainly are workarounds. Um, shimming and stuff like that, you mean? Shimming, the, there's ways you can use two pieces of top track uh, to kind of nest them to give yourself some more play for the variance and the uh, slopes, variance and the flatness and levelness of the floor um, or of the deck above. So making almost like a slip track inside of a slip track kind of thing? Yeah, I'll send you photos that you can uh, post for people to look at. Um, but th- there are certain things you can do. It's just a little bit more. It's not as much of a home run, so to speak. There's a little bit more chance for error. It's just not as common, I guess I should say. Yeah, okay. So bypass walls. Um, we'll do all the soffit shapes in the shop. And for L-shapes, light coves, whatever the architect has come up for his ceilings. All in-wall blocking is a guarantee. Um, drywall shapes we'll probably make in the shop if they're not the standard drywall that goes on the wall, but standard drywall shapes like window returns or bulkheads or things of that nature. Uh, we'll, we'll make those all in the shop to eliminate all the taping and finishing that has to go on at the corners. Mm. Um, and then interiors will probably at least kit everything together, uh, which basically means we'll take either a room or an area and we'll package everything together in a kit that you need to frame that area. So you, in this area, you'll get all the headers you need, whatever cripples you need, whatever full height studs you need, and however much top and bottom track you need to frame, whether it's one room, several rooms, or a whole area, depending on, on the building. Um, if it's a hotel or an apartment style, it's going to be by room. But if it's something different, it's, it might be by area. And it's just labeled and shrink-wrapped? or Yeah, so it's just banded up, um, basically – go through and detail the whole job. Um, in my case, at Revit's my tool of choice, and then go through and slice and dice the whole job into packages, so to speak. And each package tells you what needs to go in it. So you need this much top track or this much bottom track. You need this many full height studs, this many cripples at this length, and this many headers at these lengths. And they package it up and it gets placed on that floor in that area, so it limits a lot of the walking time that guys have to go through. It'll just be labeled like room 107, 108, 109 kind of thing? Correct. It'll be labeled by room or by area, whatever we decided to do for that job. Now, have you guys flirted with like um, any of the like uh, Howick machine or the, which is like a, people that don't know, it's a um, on-site stud manufacturing and cutting machine where you you know load the model in and it takes a you know rolled bundle of roll of steel runs it through a machine and cuts everything to length based off of the model have you looked into that or or is that so, way far out there so we have i frame cad came to the office um, two or three mondays ago for lunch and learn and presented um personally i'm I'm bought in. I believe in it a lot. Upper management still kind of hesitant. Um, I don't fully agree. personally. I don't fully agree with the hesitation mm-hmm. um, because we're start, we're already doing everything besides having the machine. Um, but personally, we're there. I'm doing all the upfront work to make the machine workable, so to speak, by creating the model and everything. But mm-hmm. we aren't currently using one. But you're exploring it. Yo, definitely. They are They are looking at it, but I don't know what their decision is. And so far, they haven't decided to proceed. Yeah. 
because all this stuff is interesting. Like it was used locally here by company Central Ceilings um, for um, they use the Howick machine at Autodesk's office. Right. So Autodesk obviously wants to, you know, push the needle on tech. And I believe they're a supporter of Howick. I think Howick was in um, there. They have like a lab there in their in their office. I don't know, like an innovation lab or whatever they call it. Um, and you said, so my point is that, like, that's very, like, you know, very far out there on the, <laughs> on the edge, right? Um, and I'm just wondering how quickly we get to that, uh, that edge. Do you think that's, you're still pretty far on the front, right? Forefront? Yeah, I would say the number of framing companies in the U.S. that have a a stud roller, which basically is 3D printing of metal studs, is the best way to explain it uh, for people who haven't seen one. It's probably maybe the top 100 at across the whole U.S. Yeah, um, not a lot. Yeah. yeah, not a lot. I think obviously one of the competitors to the roll formers are traditional, not traditional, but wood framing. Obviously, you can't use a roll former for wood framing, so. There's still a lot of multifamily or apartments and definitely single family homes that are not cold form metal framing. There are some, there seems to be an increase in mid-rise structures, which traditionally go to an all load bearing, all cold form load bearing structure, you know, the floors, the decks, the roof and the walls, um, which lend itself to the frame CAD machine. I certainly think we'll get there. We're already doing a lot of the work to make them realistic so to speak um because we have to produce the engineering shop drawings we still have to size everything uh, right now the biggest hit step is a lot of the engineers that's an assumption obviously we only work with a handful of engineers but they still produce the 2d shop drawings they basically just annotate the architect's drawings and say these are the size framing members you have to use um it's getting that leap to 3d where you can start to leverage that data to help uh, facilitate a role forming process and also the capital investment. Most companies, I don't, I have no idea. Um, I'm not an accountant or financial in that aspect, but it's still a significant investment for most companies. I would assume the machine rate is anywhere, but depending on your setup and what you get, I would say 250,000 at the low end to a million at the high end, depending on what you get. The ability to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They several options or several different machines. There's a lot of um, logic that goes into what you're picking and why you're picking it. But based on talking with FrameCAD, which is just a competitor to Howick, um, those are the ranges which you'll probably shell out to get one of those machines or several of them for various reasons. Is there anybody else in the market, FrameCAD, Howick, that you know of other than those two? Uh, I'm sure there's several others. If they are, I don't know of them. Okay. But Howick and FrameCAD, are the, I would believe, are the two major players uh, in the game. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to accelerate things a little bit, only because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, did OCP or does OCP have any kind of goals that they are driving to on prefab, like percentage of work they'd like to see or anything along those lines? Yeah, there's no real hard and fast goal um, for 
uh, saying like we want 5% of our work this year to be prefabbed. There's no metrics like that. They obviously would like to see an increase in hours in the shop. Um, mm -hmm. Percentages can sometimes be tough um, year to year, just depending on the total hours worked uh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff and however you slice and dice the numbers. But they are they want to see more things in the shop um, than less okay. in the field or less, less things in the field, more in the shop is what they're pushing towards. Okay. So the goal is to grow the percentage of work that's happening in the shop. Correct. Basic level. Okay. Um, uh, I know there's obviously there's been some change in the seat and it's been in place for only five years, but um, have you been able to start to get any metrics around what you guys are doing? Um, you know, and would you like examples or do you, or do you follow what I'm getting at? So by metrics, I'm assuming you mean savings of dollars? Yeah, you're looking at it and say, hey, hey, any job that we're using prefab on, we it's more profitable for us. It's, uh, you know, lowers our injury rates. It, um, you know, reduces waste or necessary labor or, you know dumpsters or what have you like is there any have you started to see any like hard and fast data that you can point to oh yeah we've done since september or late august we've done close to 400 panels in the shop across three different jobs hmm. um and i've all of them have one of them is finished almost finished it's probably got about two weeks left on the our scope of work one, we're installing the last of the panels on probably tomorrow or Thursday. And the other one, we're only halfway through with it, I would say. Mm. Um, the first two, there's been a savings in both in terms of supervision time, um, mainly attributed to the fact that there's a lot less planning for the foreman on site to do. So you can be more of a working foreman just because a lot of the thinking, so to speak, has been already done. So he's mm. not needing to supervise as much. Yeah. Um, there has been direct savings on labor or material. Um, okay. We have money left in material budgets by thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. Um, we have money left um, in labor hours left. We have pulled schedules up in, in all cases so far. Um, and it's the middle of winter here, even though it's not really much of a winter, it's still winter. We still have some snow. So we've pulled schedule up in the winter, which isn't very common. Mm. Um, trying to think. So touched on labor, touched on less cleanup time, still money left in the budget and hours left um, in the budget for that. And that's basically the, the major things. So there's a direct ROI that can be traced to all of them. Pretty much across the boards, it's a, it's a win. In, Correct. In it's the notable. job's more organized. You know, things are coming out right when the guys need them. It's not... It's just very crisp is the best way to explain it. It's clean. It's organized. There's not really much to complain about. Yeah. Now, you guys, like when you order your materials, are you um, ordering, you know, sheetrock to length from the suppliers? Or what's how's that been happening? Or are you guys still ordering 10-foot sheets and cutting it to 9-foot-6 for the wall? So in the case of the... Um, sheathing we're just ordering standard four by eight sheets mm -hmm. the foreman of the shop is very 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 good at um, 
laying out how his sheets go on so he minimizes waste. Um, yep. He's excellent at it. Uh, as far as the metal goes, I order everything pre-cut, and it comes labeled with a part number um, from Clark Dietrich. Clark Dietrich is headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is about four hours south. They have a plant uh, just about 45 minutes east of us. Been there, been there before, so we work with them pretty closely, um, and we get everything labeled with part numbers that match our our panel drawings. And even in the cases where, for whatever reason, we're not doing panels. I still make quote-unquote panel drawings um, for the foreman on site and order everything the same way. And there's still a savings on his side too, both in terms of labor and in terms of material costs by ordering everything pre-cut. Yeah, that raw material cost is probably the, the big delta, especially in the, uh, the steel side of things, right? Because even if they're cutting, I'm sure Clark Dietrich is recycling anything they're cutting, but there's probably very little if they're laying it out appropriately, I would assume. Correct. I believe um, from the, when I spoke with Clark Dietrich, so they obviously can roll different lengths, whatever you need, mm -hmm. um, because like when, when we ask for like 30 foot studs, that's not a standard size that they just have in stock in most places. Most of it's like 16 feet. So they mm -hmm. do roll custom lengths for us. I don't believe they can roll anything under four feet based on how their machines work. So mm. in that case, they do have to waste that material. Um, but if it's like anything over that length, like if it's five foot six, they just roll five foot six and the rest of it stays on the coil. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, let's just, yep, 5.53 minutes. Let's go with um, the kind of the question that I'm always asking folks when they're on. Um, it, it's two questions and you can kind of answer one, answer both, however you feel. But um, over the next one to two to could be five years, we're not talking a specific science here. Um, what do you think we'll see more of? What do you think we'll see less of? So, and don't even feel constrained to prefab either. And you can start with either one. So as far as what you'll see more of, I definitely just think you'll see more things go to some form of offsite construction. Um, the, People are getting more sophisticated. The tools like Revit and Navisworks are getting better and better at helping us coordinate complicated models to really facilitate a lot of that work. Whereas in the past, without without tools like that, it becomes very hard to pre-plan all of the trades at one time. Um, for example, we've done jobs with uh, a large online seller. And I'm sure you can figure out who I'm talking about. Or we've coordinated... Wayfair. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was talking about Sears. <laughs> yes. Um, where we've coordinated all of the conveyor belts, the sprinkler systems, the steel, the framed opening, all of our framing, all the MEPs, all of the conveyors that do what they do with the packages, all in a model. And that just helps eliminate and open up a lot more of those capabilities for all the trades when you can do stuff like that because we have more of a guarantee that you know things are going to kind of fit, so to speak. So I think you'll see more more things go to offsite construction. What I think you'll see less and less of, I think, is going to be people. Honestly, just be for several reasons. One, um, the way that as things go to offsite it requires less labor. I believe, not believe, just from what I've seen. And two, I think it's 
just the way the education system in the U.S. is set up, it kind of discourages the blue collar, so to speak, or the trades route. Um, and so I think you'll see less people coming into the trades and it becomes more of a necessity to do things where you can make it work with less people. Yeah. If, if the trend continues. Yeah. I mean, I even think um, technology will bite into the non-trade folks. You know, um, the guy that I know real well has been on the podcast uh, himself was talking about, are you familiar with pipe? Yes. You know, and he was just talking about what that was able to do with submittals just by them loading the spec in an AI spitting out an entire, you know, submittal schedule uh, based off of the spec, you know, something he's like that. He goes, I was highly skeptical of it, but he goes, it was probably three weeks worth of work. It didn't a matter of minutes, you know, so if that's an APM for three weeks and that now that's down to to minutes, you know, and yeah, you might need someone to comb through and make sure it's just right and say, oh, we don't want this. We don't want that. But that's a lot of hours when you multiply that over, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs, right? Definitely. I mean, projects, I should say thousands and thousands of projects. So yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's, I think it goes beyond uh, the trades though. Just my thought. I definitely agree. I think technology is just you just have to stay on top of it and trying to keep keep improving your skills, whether you're in the field or in the office. It doesn't really matter. It's it's not uh, doesn't pick favorites. No, nope, not at all. Awesome. Well, James, I appreciate you taking you know taking this time. I know between contact crew and your own videos, you're doing a lot. It's not like you're just uh, standing around with plenty of time to do this stuff. So um, I appreciate it, and you know, kudos on everything you're doing. It's like you don't normally think of in into OCP because you don't normally think of uh, what I'd like to call a drywall sub being on the forefront of technology, but uh, you know, great work. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time, Joe. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care, James. Mass cons. James was great. Um, you should definitely give him a follow on LinkedIn, especially if you're down uh, with the construction tech scene. That's where he's super strong. Uh, young, young guy, but even he started a drone company when I want to say when he's in college. Uh, I want to say he has a master's degree as well. So bright young man doing some interesting things. Love seeing that it's a drywall contractor in Ohio uh, going so heavy on prefab. That kind of just tells us... Uh, it's here. It's not coming. It's here. Uh, and if we're not doing these type of things, uh, we're going to be left behind. So keep studying up, keep listening, keep sharing any way you see fit. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. We out. We out. We out.